what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. No matter what you could see for yourself or your future, even if you can't see a future for yourself, just know that there are so many different paths you could take. And you as a human being have so many abilities and skills that you can develop. Welcome back to Meet Bridget, Kashia here. I'm the COO and co-host of the Meet Bridget podcast. Together with my best friend and partner, Asha Gabriel, I help run a confidence and communication platform for teen girls called Bridget. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are shaking things up a little and doing a little one-on-one interview with our guest today. For those of you who don't know my partner and Bridget founder, Asha was closing in on her due date and just welcomed baby girl number two to the world. So at the time of this recording, she is happily settling into mommy of two life and you are all stuck with me. I promise I'll make it fun. Welcome back. Today, we have an absolute superstar and self-made woman joining us. As a first-generation American, Gassia Tashjian started her career in medical research as a clinical research director at UCLA, amongst many other things, which I'm sure she'll tell us about, before starting what is now known as Ladry Coffee Roasters out of her own garage. From humble beginnings and a leap of faith, Gassia was able to take a tiny one-woman operation, and turn it into the beautiful brick-and-mortar coffee roastery in her hometown of Tarzana, California. She is the only female roaster in the valley, and Ladry not only makes a mean cup of coffee and literally the best pistachio croissant I've ever had, but they also host a multitude of events that seeks to create and foster community while teaching folks the ins and outs of quality coffee from selection to roasting to the steaming decadence so many of us, like myself, lean on for our morning wake-up call. I'm very, very excited to introduce you all to this lovely lady. So without further ado, welcome, Gassia, to meet Bridget. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, um, for those of you who don't know, my husband works in the food and beverage industry and he has been he's had his hands in everything all over California and pretty much nationwide now and so he was actually the one that connected me with Gossia and was like there's this coffee shop down the street from our house it's amazing I think it's women-owned and over the course of several months now has been brokering this friendship between us so shout out to Kevin for that one I'd love to get started and dive in with your childhood and your formative years. At Bridget, we're really interested in everyone's origin story, per se. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, where you're from. Yeah, so I, um, you know, ethnically, I'm Armenian, and my parents had never even been to Armenia. So my parents, because of the Armenian genocide, you know, they're their great grandparents had to relocate. And so um, my parent, my mom was born in Syria. My dad was born in Lebanon. They both ended up growing up in Lebanon. But my, my dad, my mom mostly grew up in Lebanon. My dad kind of like moved around a lot. Um, He grew up in Lebanon. Then he actually moved to Africa. He went to high school there. He moved to Greece then from Greece back to Lebanon and then from Lebanon to Saudi Arabia. So 
and my mom grew up in Lebanon and then there was a civil war in Lebanon. And so as a, I think she was a teenager, she had to move to Saudi Arabia. And that's where my parents met. Uh, they both you know, worked for the American embassy and that's how they met. Their life was very, very, very different from mine. They struggled because of, there was a lot of like civil, just war and different types of like struggles and trying to figure out life with their parents and they're like survivors and they've always found a way to, you know, have a good job, find ways to educate themselves and even through like just vocational training, anything that they could do to sort of land on their feet, that's always what they've done. And so that speaks a lot to how they raised me and my brother. Because they both worked for the American embassy in Saudi Arabia, that's where both my brother and I were born. So when I was four years old, they, you know, tried to move to America. And so uh, we they applied for religious asylum because we're Christian. And at some point we had to leave there because, uh, you know, it is a Muslim country. And if you are not Muslim, you don't get citizenship. So eventually it wasn't somewhere we were going to be able to stay forever. And a lot of my mom's family members had started to move to America and we were able to move here. When I was four, my brother was six. And so when we moved here, I did not speak English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm four, so it's not that big of a deal. But um, it was a big deal when I started to go to kindergarten. And I just like, you know, they were already, you know, it was assumed you spoke a little bit of English, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I already kind of started uh, like off the bat, not that great. I remember in first grade, I had my first spelling test and I got the results and it was all inked in red. Oh my and, gosh. And I didn't know what that meant. I was like, oh, this is exciting. You know, <laughs> so I took it home. Well, I mean, I showed my mom as soon as she picked me up, like, mom, look. And she started crying Aww. and she was really worried. So I had to do um, this program back in the day called Hooked on Phonics. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I had to do that. And I remember um, it was really cool because obviously back then there were no laptops. Uh, I'm 36 years old. So I was born in 1986. So this is in like 1990, right? So no laptops. It was like this really like cool looking full yeah. laptop. And they came I, with videotapes, right? Yes. 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 So I did that and that helped me learn English. Oh, my God. And so, you know, my parents really wanted us to do really, really well in school. It was like the most important thing because they knew like they were never given that opportunity. And Mm -hmm. so they wanted that for my brother and I. So it was all about, you know, school. And we also did, you know, extracurricular activities. I was really, really into dance. Um, I did dance. I did piano. My brother uh, was into soccer. So we just, um, they really focused on like making sure that like we got a true American like childhood and education and took advantage of like every opportunity that they were able to give to us while Mm -hmm. still, you know, instilling like we, we, I speak, read and write Armenian as well. Yeah. Because it was important to them to continue that. So yeah, that's, that's sort of like the beginning of my childhood. So yeah. And when I was uh, in elementary school, I, you know, I always felt like, because I came in and although four years old isn't that, everyone starts school at like four or five, right? right? right. But um, I, I still felt like 
I wasn't like these children, you know, and I obviously mm-hmm. didn't speak English right away. And so it's kind of stayed with me a little bit for a little while until I was, I started to get bullied when I was in mm-hmm. elementary school. I was the youngest in my class. And I think it had an effect on like, just when you're really young in your developmental years, I think even like having an eight, nine, 10 month difference between the people in your class that actually has oh, a, difference it makes a your, huge difference yeah in your emotional development so I was always the youngest one and so I experienced a little bit of that bullying from other girls it wasn't until I switched schools when I went to middle school that I had a completely different experience typically when you move schools you think you're gonna have like, oh my god nobody knows me I'm mm-hmm. you know but I went to a smaller school with less kids. And for them, it was really exciting to have a Mm -hmm. new person join them. It was a fresh start for you. Yeah, exactly. Fresh start for me and everyone welcomed me and I started to thrive in that environment. Oh, man, there's so much to unpack here. (laughs) I So (laughs) going back, are your parents, because I'm first generation American also, but our experiences are quite different. I wish that my parents or that my mom had really instilled in our generation, and I think this is true of all of her siblings as well, they were not so keen on keeping like Filipino traditions, not the traditions, but the language so much alive. Like it would always be spoken around us, but it wasn't something that was ingrained. Like you keep the the written word and, and mm-hmm. the language intact. It was like, you understand what we say to you. So it's a little bit different there. Were your parents coming from working in Saudi Arabia as part of the U.S. embassy, were they already English speaking and were they already teaching you guys little by little before you came here? They spoke very well and, you know, English, Mm -hmm. but interestingly, it's so ironic that you say that because it was completely different for them. It was like, you need to learn Armenian. Like we can't lose this you know, language and you have like, to they spoke Armenian inside the house and English yeah. to them was just for work. Yeah. You know? I wonder if part of that, and I'm thinking about it a little bit more now is because of the Armenian genocide, maybe oh, the mentality was like, yeah. we need to preserve and continue to keep our customs and our traditions alive yeah. like, while they're being actively attacked. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that has a huge, like a tremendous impact on uh, Armenians that, you know, moved here. Like my mm-hmm. parents' generation, that was a very huge, it was very important to them. And like, uh, as the younger, I mean, I think it still is instilled in a lot of us in my generation, but not as strongly as my parents' generation. Mm-hmm. There are no words to describe the experience. I mean, there yeah. are certainly things going on in the world right now, but I think when you put it into that perspective and you think about why our parents are the way that they are. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. My mom's my mom's uh, grandpa was an orphan Oh my gosh. because of the Armenian genocide. So to her, it was like, you know, no question. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. My other question is, you were so young when you were over here and you mentioned that four years old, you know, maybe it's not a big deal, but I was always the youngest in my class as well. And I felt mm-hmm. like there was this, um, I don't know, a dichotomy, I think of like, so you're the youngest 
and you're trying to keep up with all of the other kids in your class, you have the added challenge of just having been through these massive experiences, whether or not you fully processed them, you know, because you moved from your home country to the United States and then you're thrust into this classroom with what I'm guessing are a lot of children that look and sound and speak quite differently from you. So do you remember having like any anxieties or fears at that time or were you just trying to like Mm. naturally fit in? I used to suck my thumb when I started school and I don't know if it was preschool. I don't know what grade grade it was. I can't remember, but I remember we used to take naps and I Mm -hmm. used to suck my thumb and all the kids used to make fun of me for sucking my thumb. No, but but I know, but then I stopped (laughs) because of it. And so just little things like that, they spoke English a lot and like I didn't understand at the time. So, I mean, of course, this was like a long time ago and I was really young, but I just the overall feeling I had was like very out of place. Yeah. Yeah. So how old were you when you moved to schools? I was nine, nine. Okay. And okay. it was the best thing my parents ever did for me. It was like I'm s- amazing. I'm so glad. It's always, we moved around a lot as kids as well, just all over like the greater Los Angeles area. I mean, I was mm-hmm. born in San Francisco and then we moved down here and then we're kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because all of these transitions are, are really jarring at any point in your childhood. But there are some transitions where I remember, like, depending on where you are moving to, and I think this is just kind of random, it just depends on Mm -hmm. the group of kids you're coming into. Sometimes it was like the best experience you could imagine. You had kids who were really curious and then welcoming. And then sometimes it was like, okay, I've got to adjust to like a slightly more uncomfortable experience. But it does make you quite a bit more adaptable as an adult, because you're just like, well, if I can do any of those things, (laughs) like naturally, you're just, even as uncomfortable as new situations can be, you just kind of like, go for it. Can you relate to that? 100%. 100%. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that made me uncomfortable as a child, and were challenges, and I felt like it's the end of the world, like every little experience, you know, as a teenager, as a child is like, so big in our heads, you know, and I think that helped a lot as I got older. And, you know, you just you're exposed to different crowds and different experiences. And like, the way you handle yourself or adapt, it all comes from all your childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And like the things that you unintentionally, like grew skills and tools that you didn't even know were skills and tools until you're older. Yeah, I completely agree. People say like, it's so Uh, Like as an adult, you're like, oh, man, I wish I could be a kid again or whatever. But actually being a kid, being a teenager is so much harder than being an adult. Yeah, you just don't. You think and it's crazy. It's like when I think back to how I used to think as a child, a teen, Mm -hmm. you know, a young teen, an older teen, Mm -hmm. early college years, it's like your brain is still developing at such a rapid pace. Mm -hmm. And I distinctly remember at every point in life being like, oh. I've got this figured out and you're so convinced that you understand the world and it just keeps morphing and changing. I think the same could be said in adulthood, but I agree when you look back and you think about childhood, you're like, wow, this really is a time when you're absorbing and learning everything and it serves you so much 
better in adulthood when you can turn around and look at look at it in retrospect. But yeah, it's just so wild to think about the you know what you think you know versus like yeah. what's actually happening. For sure, yeah. Tell me a little bit about like teenage you, mm-hmm. like what your hobbies were, things mm-hmm. you might have leaned on. You mentioned you had a brother. Were you yes. Like- so my brother is two years older than me, and my brother and I fought a lot. So I was a hypersensitive girl. And so, and of course, being teased and, you know, bullied a little bit when I was younger, it affected me. To, like if my brother was to like make fun of me or tease me at home, I used to get yeah. really angry. And like, we used uh. to fight all the time. But I mean, we had a very typical like brother sister relationship because he was two years older than me and he was a teenager. So it was, you know, don't come in my room, close the door on me. Like, and I just wanted to hang out with him. You know, his older friends would come over and I'd want to see what they're doing and I'd get shut out. Like, you know, but it didn't. You're like the kid sister. (laughs) Yeah. One, I was like the kid sister for all of my brother's friends. That's like what I was known as, but it was endearing and it was nice too. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't terrible, but as a teenager, my brother and I weren't that close, but my experience as a teenager in school was good. And so like I had a group of friends and we became really close. It was like two or three of us. And there wasn't too much drama in that sense. There's always that little bit of like, oh, you're closer to her now and not me. And yeah, you know, and the passing like notes typical the- teen girl. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. And like passing the notes in the class and like we didn't have phones back then. Right. Like I didn't have a cell phone. And if I did like I think I got one in high school, but like the text messaging was super difficult. Like we couldn't yeah. do that kind of There's stuff. It was like 40 cents a text message. Yeah. And then like you had to like press A like three times to get to yeah. C. It was terrible. So we didn't use that kind of stuff. But, you know, overall, like I had a very like solid friend group. And one of the, I was really hyper-focused in making sure that I was doing really well in class because the group of friends that I had, they were all actually smart and they all actually mm-hmm. like got good grades, you know? And so it made me want to do really well and get good grades. Cause I, I've always been like a little, not a little bit. I'm very competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like inherently in me. I don't I know. I could just why. see it in your face too. <laughs> and my, my mom kind of instilled that competitiveness between me and my brother, which I don't agree with, but whatever. And so It started from there. And then like, I, you know, in school, I just wanted to be able to keep up with my classmates and to, Mm -hmm. especially my friends, you know, who are getting A's, I wanted to get good grades too. And I will say though, you know, I was not the prettiest. I was your typical, like I had really, really thick eyebrows. I had braces. I wore eyeglasses. I, my mom did not let me shave my legs until I was like, I don't know, 15 or 16, believe it or not. God, I can relate to this so much. I just. But my (laughs) friends were beautiful. (laughs) So when we were, when we were in like, I think it was like, I think we were in 10th grade. We got this influx of boys from a different school that had got kicked out. Uh, They had gotten kicked out of their school and our school accepted them. And they were all good looking and all my friends (laughs) started to have boyfriends. I didn't have a boyfriend. And so, you know, that had a little bit of an impact on me, even though like there wasn't someone I particularly liked in school, but 
it was just people around me that they were, you know, doing that. And I just didn't mm-hmm. have that. So it felt kind of like weird and lonely. But one of the things that saved me was outside of school, I had always taken dance. And at a certain point, uh, my mom put me in a really good like dance academy. And it was mm-hmm. a lot more disciplined. And I got pretty good. And I had to go almost every day after school for like two hours a day. And then I had to come home and do homework. Oh my gosh. I absolutely loved dance. It was such for, I don't know, for a girl that's sensitive, teenage emotions going through me. It was such a great place for me to like release that in Mm -hmm. movement. And, you know, it was such good exercise and such, it was like my therapy in a way. Yeah. It's so creative and yeah, mm -hmm. without even realizing it. So What kind of dance, just out of curiosity? Oh, my God, everything. I did ballet, jazz, tap, and hip-hop. Yeah. So fun. It was amazing. So, and then in the summertime, I would do workshops where I would be there every single day. And mind you, it was expensive. So Mm -hmm. at some point, my mom was like, we can't afford this. This is crazy. So I started actually teaching at the school. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I started teaching dance classes to take dance classes. Was that your idea or was that... It was offered to me. So this, I've always loved children. Like I love kids. You could leave me in a room with like five, six-year-olds all day and I'll be the happiest girl in the world. I'm surprised I didn't become a teacher. Oh. So I loved kids and I think I was really good with the kids. That dance studio was like for anywhere from like five-year-olds to like 18-year-olds. So it was like its own little family group in a way. And so I actually, so I you know, it was offered to me by the director of that school. She's like, do you, you know, my mom said to the te- the director, she's like, I can't afford to bring my daughter here like every day. She can't afford to do the workshop because it was expensive. Mm-hmm. And the woman said, you know, she can teach to pay for her classes. And that's what I did. And it I, was love- I loved, I loved teaching kids. And yeah, it was really fun for me. And it helped with my confidence, you know, like in places that I didn't have confidence, Mm -hmm. Like my looks or whatever, you know, things of that nature. Like I didn't have the coolest clothes and I didn't have like the coolest sneakers. But like, but I could dance really good. And I had all these like, you know, I was, I felt really confident in that, you know. So it helped me a lot. I love, I love that so much. And I know you said it's funny that you didn't become a teacher. And we'll go back to that because I think in a lot of ways, you've carried that with you throughout your career and in starting Laidry. Yeah. But okay, so how when you were so let's go into like your older teen years. Like mm-hmm. did you know, I mean, you were very, very disciplined, I think, from a young age, whether part of that was your parents instilling these like incredible habits in you, or part of that was just your natural competitiveness, which I'm sure translates to competitiveness with yourself as well. Oh, yeah. But did you know what you wanted to do? Like, how did you decide like where to go to school? Like, what was yeah. that time period like for you, like moving into college in your young adult years? It was tough. You know, like my uh, parents were just basically like, you need to be a lawyer or a doctor or like you're going to be poor. <laughs> That was the mentality it was like, <laughs> you know, what they had seen when they came here. They're like, oh, OK, so like who makes yeah. money? <laughs> and it was like, you should be yeah. a you should be a doctor. Like, but I never had that kind of like I didn't I was lost. You know, I graduated high school and I went to community college first and 
you know, I had financial aid and I remember I took like a political science class because I thought, okay, if I'm going to be a lawyer, then I have to take political science. Let me see if I like it. Mm-hmm. I hated it. It was boring. And then I took, um, I remember when I was actually in high school, my senior year, I took like Psych 101 and it was so <laughs> interesting to me. So that kind of stuck and I was like, okay, maybe, you know, I'll get my bachelor's in psychology maybe I was just Mm -hmm. going through the motions taking all the prerequisites that you have to take regardless you know like I didn't really know no until when I was applying to UC schools uh, you obviously have to pick a major so I had continued to take psych classes and all that stuff in community college and then it was a genuine interest and I just went with that because I knew like even after like either I could change it or it's broad enough to where I could do something else with it. I, I had read online that you could go to law school with a psych degree, <laughs> even though that's not what I wanted to do, but it was just like sort of a safety net, you know? Yeah. So I got into UCLA and that was like a huge, huge moment for me because my brother had gone to UCLA. And so mm-hmm. my parents didn't think my brother is like a golden child, you know, like he's like the first grandchild. He was a boy. Mm-hmm. And to have a boy in like our culture, in our family, yeah. was, oh, he's going to carry on the name and he's going to do so many great things. And it's the legacy for, yeah, legacy. yeah exactly. For, you know, Im- so, immigrant families like my mm-hmm. family's the same. <laughs> yeah. so was- I'm the oldest, but the oldest boy, there's something very special. <laughs> oh, one of my grandparents like would fawn yeah. over him. Like it was just like, you know. But for me, that the fact that I had gotten in as well was like, for me, it personally, for me, it was like, oh, man, like, I did it. Like, I'm equal, you know, <laughs> that I'm I, I can do it, too, you know. So I yeah. got in and that experience was really intense for me. I had I had my first boyfriend when I graduated high school and I had that boyfriend until I got into UCLA. So when I got into UCLA, It was my, I also had like, at the same time that it was like my first week of school, my boyfriend broke up with me. And that was like my first boyfriend. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the one that you're like, (gasps) oh. Yeah, that's a big transition to go through. Like during another big transition. Yeah. And I had moved out of, so my brother never moved out. And all my friends, they got into UCLA too from high school. And Mm -hmm. they were all living there. And I, you know. It was like, oh, my God, I have to move there, you know. And for my parents, it was a really big deal for me to move because, first of all, in our culture, you don't move out till you get married. Mm -hmm. Like that is just, you know, so. But I kind of was I've always been really independent and I kind of like just put my foot down and was like, well, I'm doing it like, you know, (laughs) I'm 19 years old or whatever I was. And I was like, I'm going. And so they they didn't have a choice, but they were like, okay, where? And they wanted to be in control of the whole thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was huge for them to let me move out. You know, in retrospect, when I think about it, it's like, man, like, how did I pull that off? Like, it's huge. I mean, my brother's 17 now and he'll be 18 in November, the baby of the family Mm -hmm. and thinking about him moving out, even for me, and I'm not his mom, I'm just his big sister. But even for me, I'm like, I get nervous and anxious about it because I'm like, oh my God, thinking about him in the world by himself, it's like, Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's, it's intense. So yeah. Yeah. So I moved out and uh, I was living like right off campus, like in one of the apartments, like two doors down from my best friend. And it was just like, you know, you would think it's la da but I was so depressed because oh. I was going through a breakup. Yeah. I lost a lot of weight. I was just like, oh my God, it's the end of the world, blah, blah, blah. But I got through it. I had a lot of like good friends at the time and they really like helped me through it. I started exercising a lot. I started taking dance at UCLA. I found ways to cope you know, I ran a lot, ran, and I never used to run. I didn't even like running, but Mm -hmm. it helped me. I would run the track there. And in my mind, I'll never forget. I know this is so silly, but I mean, think about it as like a 19 year old girl, I would run on the treadmill and all I would think was, oh my God, I'm going to bump into him and I'm going to look so good. And he's going to wish he never broke up with me. (laughs) These are the things that would just, it helped me through. I don't know why, it just did, you know? And so I got that just says that determination of thinking about like what's next. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I had good experiences. And then when I graduated college, I never did the frat thing. I never did the sorority thing. I thought it was, I was kind of like, I always felt older than I was. Like I was, I was an introvert as a child and as, and then an extrovert as a teenager kind of. But then Mm -hmm. when I got into my early twenties, I was just like, looking at those things like you guys are crazy like what is fun about this like I would look at it like I'm a 30 40 year old woman like looking at these like (laughs) that are my age having frat parties and sorority party I'm like what is this like yeah how does this better you in any way like aren't you guys worried about getting a job that's all I was thinking about like that's like that dichotomous thing with like the being the youngest in your class and like having gone through all of these experiences I just feel like you were already in a different place because you're like no I've had to do this my entire life like yeah I couldn't relate (laughs) to like the sorority life or like these frat boys like yeah how they had no like they almost like they knew like life was just set for them like they didn't really have to worry about what was going to happen next and I always worried about what was going to happen next you know so I uh I graduated and then with my bachelor's degree in psychology and at that time I actually I loved all the classes I took. Like, to me, they were all interesting. They were all mind-blowing. And I did really well in school, and I really thrived in all the stuff. Like, I just loved it, truly. So mm-hmm. I wanted to get a job in it. And at the time, I found a job at UCLA that was in as, like, a project coordinator for, like, clinical trials that were based in behavioral health, specifically in addiction. Mm-hmm. And so I was, a our, like, a research assistant research associate kind of thing but I did that for like two and a half years and the job morphed into so much when I first Mm -hmm. started it was a research assistant job I was going out to like different clinics um, evaluating their programs using like very standardized evaluation forms and you know looking at starting to learn how to analyze data and things like that Mm -hmm. and then it morphed to by the by the time that job had ended I was going to a private women's prison in Sacramento every two weeks to evaluate their program that they had in their prison that was for trauma. It was like a trauma-informed substance abuse program. So, and this was like way ahead of its time. This was in 2011. Think about it. Like back then it wasn't even like, you know, that kind of stuff wasn't that out there. So 
It's crazy because it sounds like it's not that like, I mean, you and I both lived through like Y2K and everything. Yeah. So I feel like when you hear 2011, you're like, oh, that wasn't that long ago. But that no. was like a decade and a half ago. Yeah, it was a really long time ago. Yeah. So, so by the time, yeah, I was doing a lot. Like I couldn't believe what I was doing, you know, going to a private women's prison, interviewing these women, yeah. doing qualitative wow. interviews. I was like a very, in my very early 20s. So. And so I wanted, I had a project director at that time who I really looked up to. And so I wanted to have, take, have her job. And I was like, how do I get your job? And she's like, well, you need to get your master's degree. And obviously my, by the way, my parents, after I graduated with my bachelor's, my brother was in pharmacy school. So they were looking at me like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, ah, I don't, you know, like. All the time I was working at UCLA after I graduated with my bachelor's, I was in my mind thinking, okay, what can I do with this job? Where can this job take me? Is it going to get me into grad school? Is it going to get me another job? Like, how am I going to grow? And mm -hmm. so because my brother was going to pharmacy school, it also put me on the path of like, okay, maybe I go to grad school. So I applied to grad school and um, at the time I was dating somebody and it was a very bad relationship and I kind of wanted out and I didn't know how mm -hmm. to get out. And I was like, well, maybe I just move out of state. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, it's, it's a strategy. <laughs> it was very extreme. But of course, that wasn't the only reason why I've always, yeah. I've always wanted to have like a, a full experience in things. So mm -hmm. And, you know, I hadn't traveled a lot when I was younger. You know, we we didn't grow up like we we grew up paycheck to paycheck. We had like a few trips. I'll never forget. We went to Disney World, which was like a huge thing when I was like eight years old. But we didn't. And then like we had to when I was getting my citizenship, we had to go back to Lebanon and then come back into the country because we were here with a green card. So we I, I had done that when I was like eight so you guys, I totally, yeah. it didn't even dawn on me that you'd also have to be going through the process of becoming naturalized because you were yes. four years old when you were here. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, yeah. So I, and I remember, you know, raising my hand and being asked questions and pledging to be a good citizen and all that stuff. So, so yeah, so we didn't travel a lot. And when I was younger, the two shows that were like, I don't know if people do this nowadays, but it was Dawson's Creek and Felicity. Those are the two shows that I was into as a young teen. And me and my girlfriends, every Thursday or Wednesday night, which whenever the shows were on, we'd literally watch the shows with the house phone <laughs> on our ears, like talking about the show while we're watching the show. I'm like, oh, did you see that? Oh, my God. Like with my best friend, just like things like that. So that had an impact on me because Felicity was based in New York City. Mm-hmm. And it was a show about a girl when she was in college, right? So when I was applying to schools, I was like, ooh, NYU, Columbia, yeah. Boston University, like things that I did, never thought were in my reach. But when I was, I had my job at UCLA, a lot of the people that I worked for, you know, they had PhDs, they had, these were the, I was working for doctors and professors. That's who were my, they were my bosses. And so it kind of opened my mind to like, you know, what the possibilities could be for me. And they all graduated from various different schools, you know, Ivy Leagues and schools on the East Coast. And 
I thought, you know, they're going to write me my letters of recommendation and maybe this isn't out of reach for me. So I applied. I applied to all these schools in the East Coast and even schools here. And I got into both Columbia and NYU. And so. Wow. That's a big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. And it was really hard. And that that process of applying and taking your GREs and writing your essays and getting all the feedback you can from anyone that's willing to help. It was a lot. It was a lot. And I can't even imagine like, you know, it it was a lot. I don't know how to put into words. Like if I were to do that now, it would be so stressful. Did you have a good support system around you? Like where you're, did you have people helping you study or trying to maybe do it on the same track? I didn't have anybody helping me study and I didn't have anybody on the same track as me with my friends. I think a lot of my friends after they graduated with their bachelors, they, they also were working and some of them weren't thinking about going back to school. Mm -hmm. But I had like old friends from, I literally reached out to people that I knew were in grad school or that, you know, from, from my Mm -hmm. old high school that I just kept in touch with through Facebook and stuff and just randomly was like, hey, I haven't talked to you in a long time. I'm so sorry to bother you, but I'm doing this. Is there any way you can help me? Like, give me any feedback? And people were just willing to help me. I love that so much. That's like your researcher's mind, but also just like that scrappy, like, go for itness that like comes from your childhood. Yeah. And I just, I was really determined and it, it excited me, you know, just the, like, the possibility, you know, Mm -hmm. was just, and I had the, and honestly, it was like the people I was working for. They just like were people I looked up to. And I was just like, man, if I could be like them, that would be so cool. You know, like, and so, yeah, I I applied for the school of social work and between NYU and Columbia, Columbia was more expensive. NYU was giving me a partial scholarship. Mm -hmm. But, um, the fact that I got had gotten into an Ivy League, I was just like, I wasn't going to say no. Yeah, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if this has anything to do with it. But, you know, when Obama was president, mm-hmm. he really pushed school, mm-hmm. like education. And I never really thought about it till like a couple years ago, how like politics really do does play a game mm-hmm. into your like daily life. It trickles down like he was really pushing education. And then I think like I kind of like gravitated towards like the things he was saying. And so I went for it. I got in and. Oh, man. I did it. OK, it so you're lot. fully immersed now on the East Coast. You're mm-hmm. like doing life and, and finishing grad school there. At mm-hmm. that point, did you know what you wanted to do? Yeah. So I was laser focused on going back into clinical research because mm-hmm. I enjoyed the job I had as a research associate, but I wanted to do what my bosses were doing, yeah. right? So so I got into a very specific program that was a social entrepreneurship. It was a fellowship, and there was only 25 people in that program. And it was about, so it was a lot of advanced statistics, mm-hmm. like data analysis and clinical research. That was one of the focuses. The other one was financial management of nonprofits, mm-hmm. because if you are going to do clinical research, you have to learn how to like write grants, mm-hmm. how to get money and how to manage that money. Mm-hmm. So that was one of them. And then the other one, the last thing was clinical. So like working in the clinical field and learning actual therapy, because it is still a school social work. Mm-hmm. 
And so those three things combined made that program and it helped me a lot. It was the first year was focused in clinical like work, like psych therapy and all that stuff. And so part of the program was to work in the field as well as take classes. Because a lot of, you know, therapy and social work, it has a lot to do with ground field work. Mm -hmm. All the things you're going to learn in school are theory-based. Unless you put them into practice, you're not going to understand it. And so the first year, I worked as a counselor at a middle school in the Bronx. Oh, wow. And the Bronx is the most poverty-stricken city in all of America, and at least at the time. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very eye-opening experience for me when I worked with sixth graders and uh, I taught a class on social emotional development, you know, using a curriculum, of course. And I was, I had supervisors and all that stuff, but that was an amazing experience. I, I still love to work with kids. And so to be able to see their struggles and all that stuff was really good for me. And it was, it was an educational experience. And it helped me kind of understand. And I, it made me more passionate about what I wanted to do, which was work in clinical trials in behavioral health. And then the second year was more focused on nonprofits and how to grow them and how to make, raise money and how to help people and advance statistics. I was taking lots of classes on statistics. I was taking classes through their business school to learn about financial management. So it was a lot more like intellectually challenging and yeah, so when I graduated, I wanted to stay, but at the time I was engaged and my fiance had moved to New York and we were living together. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't know, this was a huge no-no in my culture. Like you can't live together before you get married mm -hmm. kind of thing. So do your parents know? Yes, but at the time, oh, this was like, it was a secret that he was living with me. And then I had to tell them. I had to write my dad this long email. Yeah. By this time, my parents had accepted the fact that, like, I was building my own path mm -hmm. and I was doing things different. But they trusted me because I was never, like, I was still on the path of, like, standing on my own two feet getting an education, getting a good job, like, and they liked my boyfriend slash fiance at the mm -hmm. time. So they had, they let go. They were like, okay, we we're not crazy about this idea, but we trust you kind of thing. And so we moved back. And at the time it was really, I don't know, this was in 2013. Mm -hmm. And jobs were really hard to come by. It was a tough time in America. I remember that. I probably had applied to like, I don't know, 40, 50 jobs. And like, it took me a long, my first, I got a job, but it was so low paying. It was almost like I was going back in time, like doing the same things I was doing when, before I even went to grad school. But I did that for like three months. And I kept still applying for jobs, still applying for jobs. And finally, I got a job as a, a coordinator at a clinic in Hollywood for mm -hmm. UCLA. And that's where I like did. I stayed there for like eight years. I moved up, finally became a project director. And that's where I met my current business partner. 
that's where like I really thrived like I it was very challenging I learned a lot it was also a very like it was a clinic that was growing you know and so I grew with it I had such positive work experiences that built my like confidence and I had a great boss who was an amazing mentor thank god you know I think I've been blessed with like professionally good experiences in the workplace but I also feel like I've also worked really hard every time I would talk to my parents about my job or what I was doing they're like why are you giving them so much credit you're doing really really good work like you're such a hard worker that's why they you know, are promoting you or that's why, you know, they like you because you're working so hard. And when I look back, it, it's actually true. Like I've always been a hard worker and I've never asked for mm-hmm. extra money for doing my job. That's like, you know, I don't know this. Yeah. This feeling of like, oh, I'm owed this because I'm owed more money because mm-hmm. I'm just good at my job. It's not true. Like you always have to go above and beyond. And I'm, I was always trying to go above and beyond. Yeah. So where I, I think I, I kind of know where your pathway is leading at this point. You're now back in California, back in Los Angeles, working now. You've finished grad school. We're coming up pre-pandemic days. Mm-hmm. Tell me how the idea for Laidry was born. So... When I lived in New York, well, side note, I, when I was in high school, senior year of high school, I had a lot of time on my hands because it was senior year. I had already taken all the classes I was supposed to take. So I had extra time on my hands and my parents were never one to like, let me sit around at home and do nothing. Mm-hmm. No, like, you need to get a job. You need a part-time job. You need to do something. And so, I mean, I was, I was like 17, I think. And so I was like, oh, I would love to work for a coffee shop. You know, it was like part of my extrovert, like, you know, attitude and just like, I love talking to people. I I love like the experience of like, at the time I didn't drink coffee, but the experience of it, the aesthetic of it, the ambiance of it was like always so appealing to me. So I got a job walking distance from my house at a Starbucks. And so I started working there and I loved it. It was such a fun little like experience. It was a lot of work, like physical labor, Mm -hmm. but it was cool. I loved it. And so from there, I started because I worked there. I had to like drink coffee, you know, yeah. <laughs> they, at the time, Starbucks was like not as automated. Everything was manual. They gave you a proper training in coffee, like how to taste the different tasting notes mm-hmm. and do all that stuff. And it was like, I thought it was like cool and fun, yeah. but nothing that like you would ever think that would become a profession. Yeah. You know, so I just like loved it. I would make different drinks. I, it was just like great, great, great. And then I went fast track all the way I'm in grad school in New York and in New York there were like obviously more independent coffee shops there of course there was the Starbucks and the coffee bean Mm -hmm. but I lived in an area where it was all like small business coffee shops yes artisan and craft and all this stuff so I started having like you know nice coffee there and it was like I was obsessed (laughs) if I could not go to Joe's coffee and I would leave like I'm like oh my god classes at 10 o'clock if I leave at nine and I go to Joe's, I could sit there and have my coffee for like 20 minutes. And I swear to God, that experience was like what I looked forward to every day. Yeah. People were like, oh my God, what are we doing after class? You guys want to go grab a glass of wine? I was like, nah. I like to me getting my 
cup of coffee in the morning was like the best part of my day. So that's where my love of coffee grew. Yeah. And then when I moved back in 2013, we didn't really have specialty coffee in the valley at that time. Mm-hmm. We still don't have a lot, but it's growing, obviously. And so I didn't have like a high paying job and I couldn't spend money going to like, you know, obviously my job was in Hollywood and mm-hmm. over there, there were some good coffee shops. So I would drive around like trying to find good coffee and I would spend like, you know, five, six dollars on a cappuccino. And then my husband was like, why are you spending all this money on coffee? And I was like, you don't understand. It's so good. And yeah. I have to have, you know, and so it kind of like just morphed from there. And I eventually like, I don't know, I was on social media or something and I saw somebody like making coffee on their like roasting beans on their stovetop or mm-hmm. something. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I want to try that. Let's give it a go. So I started doing it and I thought it was really fun. The house would smell really good. And I was mm-hmm. like, I made this. Like, I can't believe how good it is, you know? And then I, one of my, like, I think when I was first married, my mom, like, bought me an espresso machine. Not an expensive one. Like, just you're like, it was like a DeLonghi, like, yeah. beginner's espresso machine. But that just tells you, like, everyone knew how much I loved coffee, yeah. you know? Even when I was in college, like I would have my friends over and I would make coffee. Like it was just a thing for me. And so I started roast, eventually morphed into me like roasting coffee in my garage. I bought like a little, like one pound roaster, but it made a lot of smoke, you know, like you couldn't do that in your house. And so I loved it. It was like a little, like my little, like hobby, my little, like crack cool thing that I was. Yeah. Yeah. It was really fun. And um, to be honest, in the back 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 of my mind like I was always thinking like oh my god how cool would it be if I actually did this like as a job like but nothing that was like front and center like, yeah not at it was all just it starting was just, out in your imagination it was like a little seed yeah, yeah like nothing crazy and then like I was starting to feel really like I was at my job for a long time I think it was like six or seven years and I wasn't feeling that challenged anymore, but it was like a safe, good job. And I had great mm-hmm. health insurance and like my whole family had health insurance because of me. I had a boy, I had a little, all this time, like I had a son and I didn't want to leave my job to do it if it wasn't like going to be like a very safe and secure thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I So I started a little like coffee cart because people were asking me for coffee and I was giving it out and I it, it just started feeling really good. And my boss, Marissa, at the time, I would always like give her beans and she was all like, oh, my God, this is really good. Like, this is so cool that you're doing this. And she kind of like encouraged me because I was like, I don't know, maybe I want to start a coffee cart and do like little events. And she's like, do it. I think that's a great idea. Like, you know, she always want. she knew like I was the kind of person that if I put my mind to something, I really like would go for it. And so it, I started doing a coffee cart and my husband was kind of like, he knew I wasn't very fulfilled in work and he knew like I I wanted to do it. And he was like, you know, go for it. It's something small. It's not going to overtake your job. Like, go for it. If it makes you happy, just do it. Yeah. And so I started as a coffee cart. And then, you know, over time, it like got busy and I was doing events and it was helping me sell. Like I I had a little website online and I would sell my coffee bags on there. And then. Because you were doing the roasting still too, right? Yeah. At home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would roast and bag my own beans. And then the pandemic happened. (laughs) And it was a crazy time because I was working in, like, I was still working in the, you know, in clinical trials and healthcare. And 
at that time I was working on a study that we had patients in the hospital for and I was feeling kind of defeated and it was a really hard trial to do and to recruit for and all this stuff. So I was just feeling really like, like in my mind, I'm saying, how long am I going to do this for? Like, it's not as fulfilling as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And I felt defeated and the pandemic kind of made me feel like, what am I doing with my life? Like, if I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I was talking to my old, at that time, my boss had left and she had started her own little company and actually not little, she's a scientist. Mm-hmm. And so she started her, a small pharmaceutical company. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah. And so she was like something to look up to. Like she was just like a force to be reckoned with. And she was, she was doing really well. And it kind of like motivated me to like want to do something with my life that I started to have a passion for and loved but obviously it was a huge risk like to start your own company and all that and I I wasn't thinking about leaving yet you know until I started talking to Marissa and her husband at the time who I always used to talk to because he was like your husband you know a professional in the food and beverage industry and he had a lot of insight and a lot of knowledge and you know one day I I had an offer kind of to start a coffee roastery with another company. And I was asking him, his name is Paul. Mm-hmm. I was asking him, like, what do you think? Like, should I do it? And he, and he was just giving me like straight up advice. Like, let me see what they're offering you. Like, let's talk about it. Let's see like if it's a good strategy for you and this and that. And he was so insightful and so mm-hmm. smart and I really like every word he was like giving me was like gold. And so I, you know, was looking up to him and for advice. And eventually one day, you know, I didn't, I decided not to take that offer. And then I was over their house and I was talking to them about what I was going to do and what I should do. And he offered to, he said, you know, if you show me like on paper, Mm -hmm. like, your projections, like a financial projection and what it is exactly you want to do. He's like, me and Marissa would be happy to like partner with you, you know. This gives me chills because this is like all of your experiences, all of your education kind of coming together to like Mm -hmm. move you into the space where you could feel confident enough to like build and develop this business plan. Um, Yeah. And in such a wild time. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I had all the time in the world because <laughs> we were in lockdown. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, let me do this. So so I sat down and, and started putting together a financial projection, which by the way, I'd never I had kind of theoretically done yeah. in college in grad right. school when yeah. I was taking financial management, but it was nothing to this degree. But I was so motivated because Paul and Marissa were already so successful in their own right. Mm-hmm. And I knew that they were the best business partners I could ask for. Number one, I worked so well with Marissa. Number two, Paul is like already a successful entrepreneur mm-hmm. in the food and beverage industry. So he's super insightful. And so I started to put it together. And my husband's mom is a CFO of a company. And so she's knows a lot about financial projections and putting things in spreadsheets and all that. So I sat with her for, I don't know, weeks. And I, and I got all the information I needed, like down to how much a single cup costs, how much a single pump of vanilla costs, 
like down to the sense of like mm-hmm. what a profit margin actually looks like and how you can build this business in real, real mm-hmm. life. Like, you know, real quotes from insurance agencies, real quotes from just everything, yeah. everything. And so I did it. I sat down with him. I showed it to him. He tore it up. He was like, mm, no, 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 no. So I went back. He gave me feedback. He's yeah. like, okay, now I need you to do X, Y, and Z. I need it in this format. I need so I went back, sat down, did it all over again, like really pushed myself, you know? Then a couple weeks later, I sat with him again. And he's like, okay, this looks good. He's like, <laughs> And, it's kind of like um, going to like a professor at school or something yeah, and like bringing them was, the first draft, which I yes, think is really and, noteworthy too, because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of our listeners have not quite gotten to this point or stage in their career just yet oh, yeah. where they're presenting yeah. an initial offer. So it's good. It's really mm-hmm. good for them to hear that, like, you don't have to know exactly what you're doing. You just oh have God, to no. go for it. Yes, 100 percent. I did not have an MBA. But you know what? I was super driven. I was resourceful. I knew who to ask for help. I knew where to find things. I yes. I just, you can do it. Like, yes. the internet is a very resourceful <laughs> thing. And you have to know how to use it. Mm-hmm. And obviously, listen, like, I was, I had worked in clinical trials. You know what that is? It's research. Yeah. I knew how to research. Like, I knew how to do it. So, which as a side I note, was- I think this sh- like research and data analysis now needs to be a part of like the core curriculum in the United States. 100%. Like, especially now with all of the misinformation, like not even misinformation, just the influx of information. Yes. Like, yes. We have to learn you how to, to process to it. Credib- yeah. yeah. You have to know how to use credible sources. You have to know where to look for data, where to look for actual trends, you know? So- I did all of it. And I think, of course, I think he was testing me too to see, number one, how serious I was. Mm-hmm. Number two, like my intellectual capacity, my drive, all that stuff. Although Marissa had vouched for me, you know, mm-hmm. he had to, I'm sure, see it for himself. Like if this was something that I could handle. And so the second time around when we sat down, he barely even looked through most of it. But from the way that I was talking, I think, and the way that I was my confidence in all the material that I'm presenting to him, mm-hmm. he was like, okay, let's do it. And I was like, oh my God. It's oh happening. God, is- <laughs> yeah. Of course, we hadn't found a place yet where yeah. we're going to lease. We had no idea where to start, but I had partners and yes. we signed a partnership and we opened a bank account. And then the pandemic got worse and worse and yeah. worse because at the time when we had first started, it was like lockdown. Yeah. Maybe it'll be two weeks. Exactly. It was like, oh, maybe a two-week period and then we'll all go back to work. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't going to be a recession. There wasn't going to be a loss of like wood was not resort. You couldn't buy anything. It wasn't like that yet. Right. So and then a couple weeks in or like a month in, I was like gung-ho on finding a place. Mm -hmm. I was like looking everywhere for I was sending Paul to all these different places to look at properties with me and then the pandemic got worse and worse. And then my husband and I were like, man, like, and his job started to get a little bit more demanding because what he works in was like, he is a regional manager of affordable housing. And so his job got a lot more stressful, a lot busier because of the pandemic. And so they were demanding a lot more of him and he was going to have to travel and all this stuff. And I was like, you know what, maybe now's not the right time to take a big risk. 
because I also had to like, for me to be a part of the business, you know, we all had to put money in and I didn't have the kind of money I was going to have to take out a loan to mm-hmm. put my money in to start the business with them. And so I had like a very like honest conversation with Paul and he was like, Asya, I have all the faith in the world that this is going to work because, it, you know, the pandemic's not forever. And he basically said, I'll loan you the money. Don't get, you don't need to get it from a bank and mm-hmm. you don't have to pay me back until the business is successful. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, that was done. He is sort of like giving back the way he was given. What's that mm-hmm. called? Like when he was starting his brewery. Oh, paying it forward. Brewery, yeah. He was paying it forward. Yeah. He was paying it forward because good had been done to him. And he's actually such a good person himself. And I think thankfully he doesn't also like, he mm-hmm. also struggled in life, like as a child, like he wasn't, wasn't given everything he wasn't like grown up wealthy or anything so he also knows the struggle and thankfully as he's always been like down to earth and humble no matter what his successes have been he has always like paid it forward and given back and so I he basically offered me something that was like a once in a lifetime opportunity and I number one wanted to prove it to him that Mm -hmm. like he even though he's also taking a risk in me I wanted to prove to him that I was the right person to take a risk in. And so we found a place eventually, ironically, it it was in the hometown of where I grew up Mm -hmm. in Tarzana. And we signed a lease and we just, we started. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So you guys have one of the most beautiful like coffee shops ever like (laughs) I think it's such an enduring like victory and legacy that you get to carry on throughout your family like that you have created something that you've genuinely worked your butt off for and going back to like the teaching thing you guys also have plans for a lot of community outreach like you're you have these events you teach classes like you know your stuff, which I love. And I, I love to be able to say that I'm sitting here with the only female roaster in the entire <laughs> valley, which is just so cool. So what is next for Laidry? Like where we're, I mean, we're going into year three of this pandemic at this point. I mean, we're closing in on it. I know. We've been open for seven months. Mm-hmm. And um looking back at my financial projections, we are doing what we said we were going to mm-hmm. do in the first year, which is great. So obviously, I know that we are feeling a need in this part of the town that we are in. We're doing really well. The plan is to, so I don't want Laidry to be just a coffee shop. It's a coffee mm-hmm. company. So mm-hmm. we roast our own beans and we source from female run or female owned farms or farms that provide equitable pay or equal opportunity to women in the coffee industry. And, um, you know, I roast all the coffee myself and we want to grow in a few ways. Number one is like, we want to open more stores. We want to open more coffee shops. We want to be able to get our coffee bags into as many retail grocery stores as possible. We want to be able to wholesale our coffee to other restaurants and coffee shops that don't roast their own beans. Um, you know, whatever brunch restaurant there is in LA, mm-hmm. I want them to serve Laidry coffee. That's like my goal. <laughs> um, I want to grow it as, as much as I possibly can. I want it to be a legacy. I, wanted mm-hmm. to, I want to be able to build something that 
eventually I can go to coffee farms and I can truly give back to the coffee community. I want to involve our local community. So we have, you know, I, I do public cuppings every first Friday of the month where I invite the community to come do tastings of our different coffees. Every Friday, we have a uh, small business pop-up inside of our roastery because we have such a big space. Mm -hmm. I wanted to offer my space up to other small local businesses for them to have the opportunity to sell their craft products in my store and get their name out there. Mm -hmm. So I hopefully could do that in all my quote-unquote locations one yes. day. You know, So I'm just super driven to do that. And um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of hustle, but it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. You know, it doesn't feel like I'm going to work when I go to work. I just feel like I'm going to my second favorite place outside of my home with my family. You know, I love I'm that so much. And so one of the things I want people to take away is like this, like your journey in life is never like no matter what you could see for yourself for your future, even if you can't see a future for yourself, just know that there are so many different paths you could take. Mm -hmm. And you as a human being have so many abilities and skills that you can develop. You don't have to be just good at one thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a good clinical director at UCLA or, you know, like I was a good research coordinator. I was a good dance instructor. I was a good, you know, like I was a good dancer. Like, but I'm also a good coffee roaster. And and that's like really crazy for me to say because like <laughs> I know I'm not at my peak yet. I'm still developing my skills, but I work really hard. And um, I think I'm a good boss. You know, like I try to give opportunity and flexibility to all my staff. And, you know, like your road is never, it's not straight. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think you just, one of the things that people need to know is that you know, life is hard work, mm -hmm. but you have to enjoy it. And sometimes it's not enjoyable, but you have to always look at that end goal. You know, like if it if it's worth doing, do it, yeah. you know, when, and take calculated risks. You're I always going to take risk in life. You know, like I took a risk, but I took a pretty calculated one, you know, just yeah. and my husband is not a risk taker at all. <laughs> and what he told me was, because I would have freak out moments, even in this, like, I have the shop open, right? Yeah. And not every day is busy and not every day is good. And sometimes I come home and I'm like, what the did I do? Yeah. What did I do? Like, what if this doesn't work out? And my husband's always like, listen, you have a master's degree. You have a great resume. <laughs> God forbid this doesn't work out. You always have something to fall back on, even though it's not something I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. It's just at least like, I don't know, like you, you have to believe in yourself and know that you have a multitude of skill sets. Yeah. And don't ever give up, you know? Yeah. It's also part of manifestation. It's like, yes, without the planning, without the outlining, without knowing yeah. your stuff down to the pump of syrup, you know? Yep. It doesn't, it doesn't work out. Like that's manifestation and goal setting all comes down to how detail-oriented you can get within the process. And I think that yeah. your story, your journey in doing this and finding your path and carving out a new one for yourself and your family, you've really exemplified the power of that. It's like 
you used everything in your arsenal and then some. And I just yeah. can't wait to see what's coming next for you guys. Oh, thank you. So as much as I'd love to sit and chat um, and have a cup of coffee with you, <laughs> we I want to be really respectful of your time. Um, we love ending with a little fast five, which is kind of to shake off like, you know, this really meaning not shake off the meaningful conversation, but to kind of transition into something lighthearted yes. and fun and quick to end on. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to go right into it. These are short and sweet answers. I have a feeling number one might actually be a little more than a one liner, but number one, scariest thing you've ever done, big or small. Opening up this business. <laughs> yeah. Lady. <laughs> um, number two, go to coffee order. It always changes. This is longer than you would think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for the longest time, it was a 2% cappuccino. Then it changed to an Americano. Then it changed to pour overs. And then it changed to a dirty chai latte because our chai at our shop is amazing. And then it changed to 2% cortado. And now I'm back to 2% cappuccino, back to my original. Okay. Cannot <laughs> wait to try the chai. <laughs> That's really good. Number three, do you still dance? And if so, what's your favorite mm -hmm. dance genre to like let loose to? So I gained so much weight when I was pregnant and I lost, I gained 60 pounds and I lost 60 pounds dancing. Oh, wow. I took, but I took dance classes at the gym, not like professionally. Yeah. And that really helped me. But now uh, with my job, I don't take classes or do any of that. But um, about every other week, I have date night with my husband. Mm -hmm. And so we'll go out and have dinner and then we'll come home and then I will put Alexa on and I will dance for like an hour just by myself. <laughs> I love that. And uh, that is the dance I get these days. But it's the best. It always uplifts my mood. It yeah. makes it just and I need it. I know I need it because when I'm down on myself and all that stuff, or just things are hard, dance always you pulls need me that out creative. Of yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. just transitioning from like in your head to in your body. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so I think that kind of speaks to number four, which is how do you fill your well back up? Like you do mm -hmm. so much. So what's one like meditative ritual or just mm -hmm. little way that you give back to yourself? The dancing and then um, I don't get much of it, but I am the kind of person that needs alone time, mm -hmm. like literally solitude, like nobody. And so I try to get a little bit of that every week, once a week, just even if it's just like going on a walk by myself or just sitting in solitude. Um, I don't meditate, but I don't know if it's called med. I don't do yeah. any type of meditative practice, but literally I just sit in silence and it helps me a little bit. I think that counts. Just yeah, giving but, back you know, to yourself. I'm, yeah. It's, I'm in startup mode and I don't get much of it. And um, I think dreaming of that type of thing sometimes is just, <laughs> it's just as powerful. Yeah. It's really hard right now. It's, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I don't have that much time to myself. Yeah. Self-care is not really, it doesn't exist at the moment, but of just the little like golden nuggets I get every yeah. other week. Yeah. Okay. Would you, having been through everything that you've been through, 
qualify yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm a little bit of both. It's weird. Yeah. Um, as I've gotten older, I am only an extrovert around people like very close to me. I'm more observant these days. Mm-hmm. I try to take a lot in. So I don't know. I think I'm a little bit of both. I love that. I think all the best people are. I think Asha Aww. would agree with me if she were here. <laughs> Thank you. All right. And so with that, I just want to close with one final question. This is something that we do at the end of each one of our episodes with our guests. What is one quality that you had as a young woman or girl that you didn't necessarily take pride in or acknowledge then but that you look back at now and you really appreciate? You know, I wasn't very, I don't know what the word is, but I was a little timid in like showing my strengths mm-hmm. in a way. Like I... Like, it's kind of like being an introvert. Like, I was, like, I knew in my mind and my heart, like, I was a really good dancer, but it wasn't something I spoke about or, like, showed off, really. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm still that way, in a sense. Like, like literally saying to you, like, I'm a good roaster, like, I don't say that mm-hmm. ever, you know? And I think now it's a quality that I, um, being, I guess, down to earth and not very showy. Yeah. No, um, I like really- that throwing it out there um, that I didn't like about myself. I think as a kid, I was like, why don't I like, you know, show them what I got or like, I never like put it out there. But like, I think it's a good thing I didn't. I think it's just like made me a little bit like grounded and down to earth. And, um, and I think it's a good quality I have now that I don't, I don't put it out there. Like I don't, I don't try to overly do it like, or, you know, yeah. I think that resonates so much because from everything that I've learned about you this morning, all of your introverted qualities and your ability to sort of read a room, I think have really informed, you know, how successful you are now. It's like, you don't necessarily have to be that outgoing, constantly punchy person, like, in order to be driven and self-aware. So I think that's actually a really beautiful thing that you've carried into adulthood that has, you. you know, translated so well in everything that you do. And it's sort of like, man, it also like kind of manifests in the way that your roastery and your coffee brand presents itself. It's like, I wouldn't call it unassuming, but you go in and it's like you're transported. And it's not like, It's not one of those like big in your face, like we're, you know, it's like, here, let us show you what we can do. And like, let's, let's make you you part of this experience. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, that kind of like, we didn't want to put like coffee house or something on the top that was like very, very, it's kind of subtle. Yeah. And we want to, we feel like it's kind of like a safe haven for the community in a way, because um, it's sort of, un- yeah, it's unassuming, which we love, you know, we just want you to feel comfortable and cozy and really enjoy the coffee. It's really beautiful. And it's, it's Thank very you. different. And so I'm just, I'm so excited to share your story with our community. You. And, you know, keep, <laughs> keep this sisterhood going. Well, yeah. okay, so where can our listeners find you other than um, your beautiful 
brick and mortar location on the corner of Ventura and Mecca. Is that right? Amigo. Amigo. Oh, Ventura and Amigo, um, yeah. which is actually very apt in Tarzana. Where else can our listeners find you and hear more about um, what's to come for Ladry? You can follow us on Instagram, uh, Ladry Roasters, and our website, Ladry.com. Uh, the only other places you'll find me is in my home, <laughs> at the coffee shop, or at the beach. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank yeah. you so much for your time this morning and for sharing you. everything that you've been through and, and all of your beautiful insights with our listenership. So thank, thank you, you so Thank much. you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Until next time. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?